Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have a terrific Farcast lined up for you this evening. Remember that on the Farcast, we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And to do that tonight, we have three uh, great guests for you, really terrific guests, uh, everybody's favorite, uh, the great Kenny Polcari in segment one. Then Dan Mahaffey is going to cover Washington as a Washington insider, a pro's pro, really kind of a, the guy you go to when you need to know what's going on in D.C. And as a special treat tonight, Neil Dwayne is joining us uh, from Allianz, and he is a, a portfolio manager, a director, and he is the global strategist for Allianz Global Investors. He's been there quite a while uh, and is just one of the best people you can talk to about the global economic and investment landscape. So a lot for you tonight on the Farcast. Remember that on the Farcast, we believe that money is hard to make, that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, remember that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling uh, happy and thrilled about where your stocks are and investing or down in the mouth and scared and fearful, don't make investment decisions based on those feelings. Make sure you have the facts. Reach out for a little bit of good advice. And we thank you for joining us for some of that good advice here on the Farcast. Because when we need good advice, we turn to my friend Kenny Pokari. And Kenny, you know, for many years was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. He had on his, uh, on his smock every day uh, the number 1961, his number on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Also, the year in which he was born, and oddly, so was I. He now is a managing principal at Butcher Joseph Asset Management. This is a great money management firm. Kenny uh, is the star of the show there, too, so don't, don't worry about what. If you hear that other people work there, they don't matter. It's all Kenny all the time. Hey, Kenny P., welcome back to the Farcast. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be back. How are you? Happy birthday to you, by the way. I missed your birthday last week. Thank you, buddy, very much. Uh, we are uh, one month apart, and, uh, and Kenny is older which is really the only important part of that age difference. But I appreciate it, and happy birthday to you. I know I did get to talk to you back on your birthday, but uh, it's worth celebrating, right, Kenny? I mean, you know, we're it, getting to an age where you, you know, you can't take them for granted. It is. No, it's great. Absolutely. Kenny, markets have been on a roar this year. We're up 25% or more from the December lows. And, yeah. uh, you know, we got a bit of a hiccup out of Google today, but in general, things have been looking good. Tell us what you're seeing. Tell us what you think's going on in, in stock prices and markets and interest rate. God, we've got a lot to talk about. Listen, once again, where are you going to go, right? I mean, the market's up uh, close, like you said, to 25% off the December lows. But this year alone, if you look at the S&P, it's up almost, it's almost 19%. So it's had a good year in four months, right? I mean, really, that's what we've got, a market that's up 19% in, uh, in four months. So I think that's a little bit of a concern going forward. 
Um, but one way or the other, you've got this Fed that's very accommodating. You've got central banks around the world that continue to be accommodating. You've got great earnings. Even though the earnings are lower year over year, the fact is they have been beating those lowered estimates. The guidance going forward has been very robust, and that's what people wanted to hear. They understood that the earnings were going to be down year over year. It was well prepared. We talked about that for months before the earnings even started. What people really wanted to know was, okay, what's it going to look like going out? And what you're getting from a lot of the companies is actually a fairly bright and robust outlook, which has only fueled the rally, right? It's given people reason to say, this feels good. It, 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 it sounds good. These companies are reporting strong numbers. They're reporting strong forward-looking guidance, no matter, you know, people concerned about the trade war. What's that really going to mean? In fact, we're going to get a trade deal. We know we're going to get a trade deal. And, and people are less concerned about that. And so, therefore, are you going to believe it, Kenny, when we prices. get this? Point, are you, are, okay, but Kenny, are you going to believe it? When we get this trade thing done, I mean, is it yep. going to be all, all, uh, you know, all hat and no cattle? Well, no, I don't necessarily think it's going to be all hat and no cattle. But what I do think is going to happen, I would not be surprised even when we get this trade deal, if then you see the market stall a little bit. Because, look, by now, most of what people are expecting is really, in my opinion anyway, has been priced into the market, right? I mean, people know that we're going to get it, whether or not it's, it's, it's what everybody wants. It's certainly not going to be what everybody wants. But Stevie Mnuchin came out this week and talked about how we're getting closer, 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 and that the deal is very, uh, very good. And they're already talking about Trump getting together with uh, Xi Jinping uh, in, in Washington to sign this deal. So the market is prepared for a deal. Um, and I think when it gets it, don't be surprised if you just kind of see the market stall, even maybe back off a bit, because in my opinion, along with the good earnings, you've had this, you've had this excitement about this trade deal coming. So uh, I think it's, it's all good, be though. A, so, so, you're seeing, good. You're looking, so you're looking for kind of a sell the news thing on the trade. A sell the news, right. It was, it's been this buy the rumor, sell the news event. And sell the news event doesn't necessarily mean it's going to crash. I don't mean it's going to crash at all. What I just mean is don't yeah, yeah. be surprised if you see some money come off the table. Right, you're not but looking for a rally on that. Tell, tell me what you're no. thinking about oil, because we've been talking about that for a while. We've had a I mean, <laughs> uh, price of oil has really rocketed. I mean, since we right. were talking in the fall. Right. What and do you so think? What's, frust what, what's frustrating to me and to a lot of people is that is that there's plenty of oil in the ground in the world. It's not like there's a shortage of oil. There's a manufacturing shortage of oil. And now that he uh, now that Trump has eliminated those waivers for the country buying the Iranian oil, and he took that off the market, then all he's done is even create the tighter supply. As much as he has appealed to the Saudis and to OPEC to open their spigots to make up for it, they're not going to be so quick to do that, right? They spent a lot of years where oil was in the 30s and 40s, and they, and they you know, quote-unquote, suffered according to them with oil in the 30s and 40s. And so now they get the opportunity to see oil kind of get back closer to 70 or 75 dollars a barrel. I think that's kind of where they're going to, where they're trying to push it. I mean, look, the Saudis came out last night and said that Trump, not so quick. We're not going to be so quick to open up the spigots. We're going to maintain production cuts through June, and we may even extend them beyond that. But look, remember, right. the U.S. is now the largest producer of oil. So we're producing a ton of oil. But we're not necessarily, we, we produce a light oil versus the heavy oil, right? So there is some, there Which is, is some a much better there. oil. Our oil is better oil. Right. So, so, but there is some disparity there, which is causing, which will continue to cause prices to rise. But one way or the other, look, I think that, I think that it's artificial. The rise is artificial because of the production cuts. I think if they open their spigots even a little bit, you'll see oil come back in. I think now we're very solidly in the 60 to $67 range uh, for a while until we see what happens in June. Okay. So the U.S. economy is growing, Kenny. 
I mean, it's it's yep. growing at a, at a at a at a slow rate, but a reasonable rate. Is oil high enough that it causes a headwind? And then I want to ask you about markets. I think oil is going to start to cause a headwind. If I think if it's the, the, the handle, a 70 handle, I think all, all of a sudden causes a psychological headwind, right? So I think we're okay with oil in the 60s. I'd much rather see it in the 50s for sure, but I think the market and the economy is okay with oil in the 60s. But I think at 70, it becomes a psychological hurdle and it becomes a psychological headwind. Okay. So last week on uh, CNBC, Kenny, they did this uh, – stock draft right they yeah, had the nfl yeah. draft so cnbc has the stock draft and they put up this big list of stocks and then they had like 15 you know well-known yeah. investors including the beardstown ladies pick their favorite three stocks right and, and, yeah, and this yeah. and this thing runs until the super bowl which is part of it's kind of silly it's it's kind of fun but then kenny they had me on the next day to criticize the picks and to explain right. why I liked one better than the other. And, yeah, and they did that. Was, I was not part of that. Thank God I was not part of that. Well, I got sucked into it the next day, and I'm always yeah. happy to be on with my friends at CNBC, as I know you are, because yeah. uh, these are our great, great buddies. But uh, what I said was I, I, I went with Kevin O'Leary's more conservative three stocks, and uh-huh. uh, and they said, why would why would you do that? You picked the you know the most boring ones. And I said, the market's up twenty five percent since the December right. lows. It's up nineteen percent year to date. You want me to pick high octane stocks at this point? Right. Well, I mean, there's well, a lot be- of uncertainty, huh? Well, because you know what's going to happen. The high octane stocks on the way up are exactly the ones that are going to get smashed on the way down. If if all of a sudden there's a change in tone or a change in sentiment or something happens, oil goes through 70 and all of a sudden the market gets weak, those high-octane stocks are going to be the ones that are going to get crushed first, as you can imagine, right? Well, and they're asking me to give my opinion on for a 10-month period. I manage money for 10 years at a time. I don't know what to do right. in a 10-month period. But, right. it, Kenny, because, you know, Fred and Ethel are listening, and we do have – and thank you very much to all of our listeners, ladies and gentlemen, that you tune in every week is a great honor and privilege uh, to actually be in your homes uh, and be with you in your earbuds and cars. We appreciate that a whole lot. But we know that you listen. Uh, and, Kenny, as we talk to our listeners, tell, them, tell us all what you think we should be doing with money as we look into the end of the year and as we look forward. Well, listen, like I said, in the, we've had a great year in four months, right? So I yes. think you have to be prepared. Look, the market's up 20%. Right, almost twenty yep. percent. Well, the Nasdaq's up, I think, twenty-two percent just from January. Yes. Never mind where yeah. it's up from December. So I think you have yeah. to be realistic and think, okay, we've had its great move. I don't think you can expect the markets going up another ten or fifteen percent this year. I really don't think you can do that. But that being said, I think if you've got a well-designed portfolio and you get the opportunity, if the market backs off, to add to some of those names that are already in your portfolio, ones that have passed the test, ones that are uh, names that you like and own, then you should take advantage of that. You shouldn't go chasing. You should not go chasing. And like you just said, Michael, right. you picked the three boring stocks because the market's already up 22 percent. So you shouldn't go right. chasing and you should take advantage of when they pull back and they will pull back. Trust me. They, you know, you and I sure both know they're going to pull back. Sure they will. Um, and that's when you should keep your money, you know, have some ammunition ready to take advantage when that happens. Well, and you know, Kenny, I think, I think that's very good advice. I think the other thing for listeners to remember is uh, it, it's, it's fine to take a look and see if risk has entered your portfolio uh, quietly and, over the past few months. And, you know, if you've gotten a big and, position, 
of a stock that's really run. Maybe you don't have to sell it all, but you, you could take some off the table, couldn't you? You, you well, you absolutely, you absolutely should. And you know, you can do things like, and 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 whether people whether people do this or not, you can certainly think about it like as an asset manager. You know, you you hold a core position in a name, and so if you like Apple, but Apple is now racing these new highs, and you're overweighted, so take a little bit off the table. But if you really like Apple, keep that money aside. When Apple pulls back in, you put that money back to work in Apple while always maintaining a core position. You never get rid of the name completely. You maintain the core position and you trade around it the way the big asset managers do, if in fact that's what you like. You can also take money off the table on Apple and find another stock that maybe is undervalued or that you don't own enough of and put money to work there. That, that, that is excellent advice. And by the way, you're not going to buy Apple cheap tomorrow. They reported no. strong guidance and an earnings beat after the close right. today. That one's going to be right. on, on Fuego tomorrow. Kenny, right. any final right. words? This is so good to hear your voice. I mean, I feel like we got the band back together. You know, it's God's a, in his heaven and all's right with the world. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be back. You should have me on more often. <laughs> I'd love to have you on, you know, not more than daily, but I think we should work on daily. Ladies and gentlemen, right. uh, my, my very good friend and uh, your uh, most popular uh, market commentator, <laughs> Kenny Polcari, is a managing principal at Butcher Joseph Asset Management. When we come back, we're going to bring back Dan Mahaffey. We're going to be talking about the uh, Pelosi-Schumer-Trump meeting today. We're going to be talking about China. We're going to be talking about Joe Biden, Uncle Joe in the race, and a lot more when we're back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, or call me at 202-530-5608. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. What a terrific segment. It's great to have my friend Kenny Bolkari back again. Uh, what a terrific, uh, he's just a terrific friend, but he also has marvelous insights into what's going on on Wall Street. You know, he started on the floor of the stock exchange when he was 18 years old, and I can tell you because we share the same, uh, uh, we share the same year uh, of our births. We've just had our birthdays. We're both 58 years old. It's a long time on the floor of the stock exchange. So, Kenny talks, I listen. When I want to find out about Washington, and of course we talk about Wall Street, Washington, and the world on the forecast, uh, when I want to find out about Washington, I turn to my friend Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Uh, Dan manages uh, the CSPC's policy programs. He has a master's in security studies with a concentration in U.S. defense policy from Georgetown University and a bachelor's in government with a minor's in history and Mandarin Chinese, also from Georgetown University, studied at East China Normal University in Shanghai, uh, 
He writes. He's published. He's the uh, he's the real deal, my friend Dan Mahaffey. Hey, Dan, welcome back to the Farcast. Hey, Michael, good to be back. You know, every time you say the name of my organization and you add the and Congress, it's almost like we didn't have enough on our plate with the presidency, so just decided, you know, what the heck, let's throw in Congress, too. I, you know, I knew your organization uh, under my friend, the great David Ambassador David Abshire, uh, when it was just the Center for the Study of the Presidency, and uh, God rest David's soul, and with no disrespect, I was pretty certain that there had to be a, some sort of a donor uh, of some import who wanted the addition of Congress to the name, if David well, changed that, it that way. It, it was the suggestion of Senator John Warner, actually. See? And uh, the great David Abshire, may he rest in peace. Uh, you know, the way he saw things, he saw his staff working nine hours a day and figured they had plenty of free time to be able to work on Congress, too. <laughs> yes, I can see, uh, I can see David uh, making that decision. Um, well, not much uh, for us to talk about uh, this week, Dan. We've got Uncle Joe entering the race. We've got uh, uh, the Treasury Secretary and uh, Bob Lighthizer off for China, going to bring it, bringing home the bacon. Uh, we have uh, uh, the Speaker of the House uh, and Senator Schumer uh, meeting with the President today. We've got the Federal Reserve still trying to figure out what to do uh, with my uh, friend Steve Moore who, boy, I don't think he did himself any favors this morning on CNBC, but tell us where you'd like to start, Mr. Mahaffey. Yeah, well, you know, other than that, how is the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Um, <laughs> we've, we've got, uh, you know, I think what we've seen at least where we have this discussion on infrastructure and that it did seem civil, and I think we're, we're looking at now like potentially uh, $2 trillion in infrastructure spending, so the battle's uh, quickly going to be uh, where do we uh, where do we raise that money or does it just go on the national credit card? Um, but beyond that, uh, I think it's interesting to see how the Democratic leadership, as much as there's a hue and cry from the base uh, on impeachment or or further investigation, understands that they need to show that uh, even if they want to investigate the president, they can walk and chew gum at the same time and, and point to some things that Democrats have done on infrastructure, perhaps even some more on health care uh, as we go into 2020. So, Dan, uh, pretty much the only agreement today was both sides would like to spend more money on infrastructure without any earthly idea or discussion about how they would pay for it. Yeah, I think you, you've, you've got that sense. And, and let's look at how, you know, where is it going to come from in terms of a, a revenue bank, bond issuance, uh, shared fees with the uh, with states and municipalities uh, looking at but things. You're, you know, you're although, talking two trillion dollars, Dan. Two trillion dollars, right? Well, that's I the mean, you know the you know how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. Ten 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 percent of GDP. I mean, all yeah. right. Uh, so, but, but look at how we lag behind the way we lag behind some of the other countries and where where it's coming due. Uh, you know, in terms of the the New Deal and Eisenhower era infrastructure that we've really uh, we've run out past its date. And, you know, uh, on these things, if you don't if you don't do the maintenance, the machine is eventually going to make you. Yeah. So sooner or later, this absolutely has to be done. And I think everybody agrees we need the work on our infrastructure, uh, everything, potholes and bridges and everything else. But 
some sometime you've got to pay for this. And uh, so far in Washington, they've agreed, you know, they haven't seen a proposal that they didn't like uh, or a dollar that they haven't wanted to spend. I'm going to move on and ask you why the president and his foundation and members of his family are suing to keep his financial records. I mean, the banks from releasing they're they're, they're suing a Deutsche Bank and mm-hmm. another bank. I can't remember which one. A Capital One, I, I believe, was the other one. Yeah, Capital One. Uh, uh, so that they don't comply with the congressional order. What's going on? I mean, I think I know what's well, going just on. I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah, just like the uh, Capital One commercials, it's fitting. Congress wants to know what's in his wallet. Um, <laughs> and the uh, the uh, the approach there is that, look, these, these transactions, whether they're related to Russian influence or uh, perhaps, you know, real estate dealings, hush money, all these things that were opened up by uh, the Mueller investigation and these other investigations in the Southern District of New York are are now on Congress's agenda. Uh, the the Justice Department wasn't going to indict a sitting president following their their guidelines, uh, so therefore we move to these congressional investigations. Uh, and the the Trump family clearly does not want uh, want Congress to see what's in there. Uh, it's relatively unprecedented because you you don't have a uh, a historical example of a president having this complicated of a uh, financial or business history for Congress to look at. Well, is there okay? So uh, the the we're we're trying to we're trying to figure out. Congress is trying to figure out. I guess what are they trying to find out? I mean, are they trying to make the president uncomfortable, or are they really trying to dig past the Mueller investigation to see? if there were any other deals or arrangements with Russians or other outside governments that could be seen as probably not quite cricket? Yeah, I think we, what we want to see is where there's, uh, in their mind, where are the uh, transactions with foreign countries? You know, so much of the emphasis of the Mueller report was on Russia, but we also hear about the, the Gulf states, the Saudis, uh, other, you know, other influences on, on presidential policymaking that might result from uh, financial arrangements of the Trump organization or how these countries continue to spend uh, on the uh, Trump properties. And that's where you get into the, the idea of what the emoluments case in the Constitution is. All right. So uh, they're not they're not messing around. Does this how long could this fight get dragged out and can it get dragged out long enough that this data remains buried until after the election? Well, I think if you have these investigations ongoing, the courts are going to want to move quickly on this uh, or even just say it's it's fundamentally a a political issue and and try and step back and look at what the law says. Um, But beyond this, you know, it's the there's many in Congress who have a feeling that if if President Trump was not President Trump, but rather uh, still real estate investor and uh, reality TV star Trump, uh, that the Southern District of New York would probably be putting together an indictment uh, on some of the uh, the ways his organization and his foundations have operated. Uh, so absent the ability to indict the sitting president, president, Congress is saying the Constitution makes this a political issue uh, that we can investigate and perhaps choose to, to go down the impeachment route, although I think they want to move away from that and focus their efforts on just bringing these things to light in advance of the election. Well, you know, Dan, you suggested uh, you have suggested for several months that that would be the approach of a Democratic uh, Congress, majority Congress, that they would just subpoena uh, 
the hell out of him and drive him crazy, and that that would probably serve their interests much better than uh, than actually impeaching him, which he could, you know, probably use mm-hmm. as a more uh, sustainable foil uh, in 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 his uh, uh, political banter back and forth. Let me shift now uh, to the uh, Democratic uh, group of presidential candidates in the few minutes we have left here. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden has uh, formally uh, announced, um, and uh, uh, he's, you know, uh, looks like he's leading the pack. It looks like in certain polls he's already beating the president. What what does mm-hmm. all of that mean? I also saw some of the Democrats, uh, some of the Democratic candidates uh, already go after Pete Buttigieg uh, and and start to attack him. Are they just going to? Is this a uh, circular firing squad? These guys are going to build and see who they. Yeah, can there, take there's going to be a bit of yeah, a bit of that circular firing squad in the old you know uh, Will Rogers quote. You know, I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Um, there's, there's the, there's that aspect to it. I think you also have, um, there's probably, you know, 20, uh, percent of the base. I, I described them as I was told by a former Republican member of Congress that the, the Democrats now have their herbal tea party. Um, and, and they're going to be very vocal on, pro- on progressive issues. Uh, the, at the same time, uh, very interestingly, in a, in a piece on, on the Bulwark, which is kind of a, a never Trump newspaper website, it's sort of the Republicans who uh, have who were always opposed to Trump, you know, the Charlie Sykes and Bill Kristol types. But they were pointing out that Biden has the advantage of just being a very well-liked politician. And I yes. think we're seeing that in the poll bump that, you know, people, when they like a politician, it's harder to get them to dislike that politician but on the other hand, like like Romney with his binders full of women or uh, Obama early on with the uh, the arugula gaffe, um, those were ways where people who, who didn't like a, a politician found something silly and, and tried to use that to justify their dislike. By the other does hand, the affection, it's, very, it's very like, yeah. Does the, does the affection for Joe Biden... Um, uh, can it can it survive the attacks from the other Democrats, and can it survive what are bound to be additional, uh, at, at least gaffes uh, from the vice president? I mean, he's fabulously well known for them. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't expect that he won't have a few in here, or do we not care anymore? Does that? I mean, somehow that kind of makes him a little more charming. But yeah, uh, it makes him it makes him more. Yeah, it makes him more realistic. I think, you know, he that he put a lot of the the concerns about his lack of respect for some people's personal space uh, yeah. behind him. Um, I think it's interesting to see how much the uh, the Sanders campaign was actually kind of trying to make it so he wouldn't enter the race. I think they're very concerned right. now that he's in. Um, you also saw with that, though, the. You know, look at his past scandals. Okay, you know, in in, in an era where we now have uh, you know payoffs to porn stars and and Russian influence, you know, plagiarism seems kind of quaint. Uh, so <laughs> the the Biden scandals Harry, are I almost. Harry, I think that's the title tonight. By the way, plagiarism seems kind of quaint. I, I think that I, I think, I think that's what we're going to go with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Dan, I've got I've got one minute. I I want to shift Dan one minute. As you're talking about all of this uh, innuendo, and, and, and it sounds right off the cover of the yellow tabloids, Stephen Moore, 
Uh, the candidate for the Federal Reserve was uh, said he was very concerned about men this morning and their male earnings uh, are not uh, are going down. And this is a big I, I mean, I, he, I couldn't have heard a more tone deaf sort of an interview than my friend. And I like Steve Moore. I've spent I've, I've known him for years. Uh, I need you really quickly. Does he stand a chance or is he DOA? I think when you see Republican senators like Joni Ernst starting to uh, move against him, you know, that that wall is breaking. Uh, and Rob Portman was going to be a very important vote. And we find that where he called Cincinnati an armpit. Um, you know, those are not the things that help you if you if you call one of the major cities, Ohio, an armpit. And then you need the support of the senator from Ohio. Uh, I think mm-hmm. unlike Joe Biden's gaffes, his are uh, his are terminal. You think his are terminal. OK. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my friend Dan Mahaffey, uh, the senior political strategist on the forecast from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Thank you so much, Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll be right back uh, with our special guest tonight to talk about the world, world politics and economics. Uh, Neil Duane, managing director, portfolio manager and global strategist with Allianz global investors. He's been there quite a while, uh, 18, 19 years. It is such an honor to have him on when we come back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, the Farcast three-minute morning brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast three-minute morning brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. It is so nice to be with you again this week. Thank you for joining us. Had a great Farcast. Kenny Polcari, Dan Mahaffey, uh, just terrific segments as we've covered Wall Street and Washington. And when we move to the world now, it is a great honor and privilege to be joined by Mr. Neil Duane, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, and Global Strategist with Allianz Global Investors. He coordinates and chairs the Global Policy Committee. It formulates the firm's view, leads the firm's biannual investment forums. Uh, He is responsible for the firm's uh, investment outlook uh, for all of Allianz. And we've had my friend, the great Mona Mahajan, uh, on before, does a fabulous job in covering the U.S. But here we have uh, the man who covers the world he has a BA from Durham University, a member for the Institute of Chartered Accountants. Welcome to the Farcast, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk to you and your listeners. Well, it, it is it is a terrific opportunity for us and our listeners. I know are thrilled to hear what you have to say. Uh, we've been talking, Neil, and I know you've listened about what's been going on in U.S. markets and U.S. politics from your global view. I'd like to start with a very broad perspective question. Um, when we look back and think back to the uh, uh, George W. Bush presidency, the Barack Obama presidency, and uh, now the Donald Trump presidency, how has the view uh, of the United States from the rest of the world changed? How do, how do you think it's changed? And how does that changed view uh, uh, affect 
uh, us and the rest of the world economically? Well, I mean, Michael, it's a very big topic, but I think the way I'm thinking about this is firstly to say I think there are political cycles, uh, and these cycles tend to last 20, 30, 40 years. I, I would argue that the globalization cycle that we have all done so well in in the last 30 years started with Thatcher and Reagan and obviously got a turbo boost in the 90s with the accession uh, of China to the WTO. I think what we have now been seeing in arguably the last five to, to 10 years across uh, the developed world has been a fragmentation of the core of the political parties, what you, would, you in the US would call the Republicans and the Democrats. They are fragmenting just as they are in the UK, in Italy, and as we saw over the weekend in Spain. And that is therefore making it harder for many investors, to, I think, to anticipate the type of policy that will unfold. With respect to the US, I think it's all been really about the fact that the world's global policeman post-World War II is now seeing their role changing. And I think that role was an assertive one under uh, George W. Bush. Obviously, we had uh, a few wars which were not popular uh, around the rest of the world. And arguably, uh, to your opening session, I think has made the supply chain of oil a more fraught supply chain uh, 20 years yeah. on than, than we all thought it would be. I think when we see what happened with Barack Obama, I think he was, uh, he was the man for change. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like he did a lot other than the, uh, the, the sort of groundbreaking health care. And certainly the pivot away from Europe towards Asia, while strategically sound, it feels like that has then left, to some extent, some vacuum that we're now seeing, uh, particularly with the relationship with Europe. And that has really exploded under your current uh, uh, president because he is, I, I would say, rightly questioning the point of NATO. He is rightly arguing that maybe um, uh, the, the, the Germans in particular have been too close to uh, countries like Russia, which is a, um, certainly commercially is not necessarily where, um, uh, where we would want to go. And he has also, I think, led the charge towards trying to make China a more generous competitor in the world economy, uh, rather than necessarily simply a big market who basically bend all the rules and steal your intellectual property. So I think there's a, a whole load of themes that come from uh, the view of the world. But the point I would leave you with on the back of Dan's excellent comments was that it, when I'm in Asia, people are very worried about trade. And therefore, with five, sorry, with, with 15 months to go to the next election and potentially four more years of President Trump, I think Asia is worried that we will do a deal and then we'll have to renegotiate it and we will have to renegotiate it. And therefore, they will not feel that a deal is a deal uh, uh, under the, the current president. I think in Europe, it is more complex. We obviously, when we have the trade deal with China, will then have to have the focus on, uh, on European trade. I think that is harder because there is not alignment in Europe about what they want. The Germans would obviously like to sell lots of cars, but the French are not going to open up their agricultural economy to uh, American competition. And obviously, with Brexit sitting in the background, the British by then could well be playing favourites. We may wish to become, you know, effectively a state of the United States, which will simply then aggregate, ag aggravate even more the type of relationship that the UK has with uh, with, 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 the, um, uh, with the European Union. So I think the politics at some point may have a cost to the US dollar. 
I think at some point, regardless of monetary policy, we will see maybe more sovereigns beginning to decide to carry less dollars. That is obviously the explicit case of the Russians. But we're now seeing clear evidence that the Chinese are buying more euros than they're buying more dollars. And there could be other people who start to move maybe to take their money, including the Saudi Arabians, by trading in non-US currency for oil rather than the good old petrodollar that you and I have been used to for the last 30 or 40 years. So, Neil, do you really think, uh, do you really think that the politics can, can affect the dollar that much? And the reason that I'm asking, of course, is that we've had a huge rally in the dollar. Uh, it's really gotten quite, quite strong. I think I saw, and it might have gotten back to $1. twelve to the euro, dollar eleven to the euro yesterday. And, and uh, don't you think that the dollar perhaps is more just an effect of, of the interest rates, the global interest rates, global slowing, and the U.S. perhaps not being a political favorite, but just having the best rates in, on the street? Well, I, I certainly think at, at the political level, I think the legal system in the U.S., as it is in the U.K., is a tremendous advantage. Um, I think, as we're seeing, let's say, with the Nissan scandal, you know, the, the, you know how, they're, how they're dealing with the individuals involved around that is very obscure to non-Western um, uh, people. But I think the, 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 the reason the dollar has been strong, and I would actually be a bit picky and say I think it's been okay, it's up about 5 or 7% in the last 12 months. I don't think that's necessarily formidable. But of course, I think the problem is Japan is in a bigger hole. The UK is in a bigger hole. Europe is currently in a bigger hole. So to some extent, the dollar has been strong because everything else has not got its act together. And so I think as we think as we think going forwards, I think the political uncertainty, the aggressiveness of the politics that one perceives now in the U.S., um, I think is 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 we're only going to see people buying the dollar if they can buy it on a hedged basis. And because of the big spread now between U.S. interest rates and Japanese or European interest rates, we're now finding that the 10 year treasury is below the hedge cost. And therefore, you're not seeing a lot of support for U.S. fixed income assets, certainly in the Treasury markets at the moment. And of course, what we're seeing in China as China rebalances and arguably has slowed is China has no surplus to reinvest in the U.S. So I would say for you and your listeners, a big theme, I would say for the next three to six months is if um, the U.S. market has to refinance approximately $500 billion of existing debt plus finance the, 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 uh, the administration's budget deficit, which looks to be close to a trillion dollars, then it's yeah. going to be U.S. consumers and UN, U.S. investors who, who are buying those bonds. And my question, Michael, is are you buying them at 250 or would you rather buy them at three? Because America may set the price <laughs> of its own debt. Uh, you know, uh, they have been uh, most uh, of the other strategists and economists I talk with uh, on this program and when I'm on uh, CNBC or uh, National Public Radio, wherever, wherever I have the privilege to talk with these other smart people, most have been somewhat mystified by the strength in the U.S. Treasury and that 10-year yield hanging stubbornly at 2.5%. Uh, uh, lots of reasons why those rates should go higher, and yet they don't seem to. Let me ask uh, and shift a, a little bit. Uh, as you look at the U.S., and boy, this is, you know, whenever we have fabulous guests, guests Neil, like yourself, time just flies. We've got just like four minutes left. But tell, right. tell me, what, what's, what's your view 
uh, of the U.S. relative to a potential recession. A lot of people were very worried about that here a month ago, and now they don't seem to be that worried about it. And, and how about around the rest of the world? We seem to be in this very slow growth environment, not only domestically, but abroad. Well, what I, what I would say um, briefly about the U.S. is that we are quite consensual and that we don't see any U.S. recession in the next 12 months. Um, but unfortunately, we see a probability of a recession in the next 24 months of nearly 75 percent. So wow. we think the U.S. is late cycle. And therefore, I would say the bond market with the yields at 250 ish is telling you they don't see the all time highs of the S&P being sustainable. If the bond market were to agree with the equity market, U.S. Treasuries would be back at those critical levels of 325 or something on the on the 10 years. So I think the bond market is calling something very different from the equity market. The other thing that I think has been important this year has been how to read what is happening in China. We believe strategically that China is stabilizing. China is not going to reaccelerate in the way it did in 2015 or 2010. So we don't see China as a get out of jail card for the global economy. We do see some positive things happening in India and Indonesia once the electoral cycle has, has kicked off uh, and it obviously ended positively in Indonesia. And when you think about the big export economies, South Korea, Japan, Germany, they are as yet not telling you that the global economy has bottomed. So why, when I me, think about- Tell me why China, why, why don't you think China will have that resurgence that it saw in 2015? Because it doesn't suit Beijing's interests. Beijing knows it needs to rebalance. Beijing knows it needs to deleverage. And therefore, it is going to do just enough to keep the Chinese economy on track so that employment is fine and investment is fine. But they are not stimulating. And when you so look at recent, this economy, yes, and boy, they know how to do that. And all the recent reforms are all about giving more money to the little Chinese man. They are not about bigging, building bigger bridges and bigger skyscrapers. They are trying to make sure that consumption in China starts to grow. And so I think from a global perspective, I'm going to try and, try and be slightly humorous here, Michael, so we'll see if you like it. You have a president <laughs> in the U.S. who is making America great again. And the GDP numbers last week show that one of the things that happens is that America withdraws demand from the rest of the world. Imports were poor. So if America's not buying it, who is the world selling to? Well, China is going to do the same thing. President Xi has now got to make China great again. And that means that he is not going to bail out the South Koreans or the Japanese or the Germans. He wants to boost Chinese consumption. That is what the trade war is all about. That is what the Made in China 2025 about. It's about internalizing in China the growth that is coming forwards. Yeah, it makes it makes it, it is a very cogent argument, makes a great deal of sense. So finally, and we're already out of time, but I, I still need to, to have your expertise is, is just such a great gift for our listeners. Tell us what you would do as an investor in U.S. markets and global markets and how you would allocate assets. And I have about 30 seconds, Neil. I'm sorry. So we're, we're in profit taking in, in a lot of the markets that have moved strongly, the equity markets, many of the emerging market bond markets. We're still leaving a level of risk there, but our key theme for your clients is the hunt for income. Uh, there's a lot of interesting high-yielding investments, U.S. high-yield, U.S. short-duration, emerging market debt, European equities. We think income is the theme going forwards because maybe valuations of many markets have now become quite frothy. 
Neil Duane, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, and Global Strategist with Allianz Global Investors. Thank you so much for joining us on the Farcast. This has been wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another great forecast this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We try to talk about things that we hope will be of interest to you as you think about your world and lives and, and finances, uh, and we appreciate uh, you letting us be a part of that. It's a great pleasure and pri privilege for us. We will be back again next week. I will be in Washington, D.C. again next week for the forecast at Chatter. Please come and join us for that recording. Otherwise, please know that I am entirely and thoroughly grateful to each and every one of you. From Naples, Florida, for the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security, you haven't. The information provided in the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. You should consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. If we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please give us a call. Join us next week on the Farcast when we welcome back special guest Tony Fratto. Tony is a Washington insider whose experience and expertise is second to none, and also just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Go beyond the headlines every week with the forecast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.